Good morning. I'm Darrell Gunter, your host for Leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM and streaming on the net at WSOU.net. I'm so pleased to have in my studio today not only a, a guest, but a friend, but also a colleague, Mr. Tim Russell. He's an international businessman, but also an entertainer. Tim, welcome to the program, and thank you for interrupting your schedule to share with us uh, your thoughts and insights on leadership, but also discuss your new album, End of Beginnings. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Tim, if you could, could you share with the audience the highlights of your education career background? Yeah, sure. I, um, I grew up in the Boston area and went to school at Skidmore College and graduated at a time when the economy was in a bit of a rut and had essentially three options, going back to school, getting an internship, or traveling. And I chose the travel option, and I went overseas to Asia. Never been there before, and loved it, loved the culture, loved the people, loved the excitement and the opportunities, and I really have never looked back. And that's really what started my interest in my career working in business in the international side of things. And uh, from that point onwards, I really focused on bridging the gap between American companies and foreign companies. So, And how long have you been here at NewsBank? I've been here at NewsBank uh, for coming up on seven years seven now. Seven years. And you manage, of course, all the international business, not only China, but uh, anything outside of the U.S., correct? That's correct. Yeah. Uh, Europe, Middle East, uh, Southern Sub-Saharan Africa, Australia, and Asia. I mean, that's a fascinating background to say, I'm out of school, hey, the economy's not doing great, but hey, I'm going to go to China where I don't speak Mandarin. (laughs) (laughs) But you you speak Mandarin now. (laughs) Well, I do. I ended up living there for three years and then coming back to Boston, Mm -hmm. uh, working with a company in, in this industry. They then sent me off to Australia, where I lived for three years, and then I came back to Boston, and then was shipped over to Hong Kong for three years. So for pretty much the last 20 years, I've been going back and forth between, uh, well, I should say between the United States and abroad. You know, I'm really looking forward to diving more into leadership, but also leadership on an international basis, because you're dealing with so many different cultures and languages. But let's talk about your new album. End of beginnings. When I first met you, and uh, I was at a news bank event, and uh, you went picked up your guitar. Next thing I know, here's this. We got this great entertainment, <laughs> um, and and then we, you and I shared a conversation. You said that you were recording this album. Tell us about end of beginnings, the title, and how did it all come about? Well, end of beginnings was really a labor of love that was a twenty year project in the making, and it started literally with my first assignment overseas when I was living in uh, Taipei, Taiwan of all places. And I've always had this theme of wanting to get away, but at the same time always wanting to come back home. And many of the songs um, and the lyrics really tie into that whole concept of being a little bit unsettled, um, always wanting to come home and finding a home. And the meaning of the title, End of Beginnings, really came about with an epiphany of sorts where I think I sort of figured it all out. And that is finding a good work and life balance, um, being happy with what you have, where you are, and making the most of the time. And so 
end of beginnings really signifies the end of this period of, I wouldn't even call it wanderlust so much as back and forth, but really moving forward with a clear idea about what I want out of life and um, the songs that I had written when I was in that sort of 20 year state of mind summarize that point, but I'm not there anymore. So, Is there a signature song that epitomizes end of beginnings? Well, one of the first songs that I wrote and recorded, uh, a song called Ten Hundred Miles, which talked about uh, my sort of longing for being at home, which was ten hundred miles away at the time. Okay. okay. Um, probably sums it up pretty well. And I've got a little clip here, if you like. I would love to hear it, yes. And if I if I remember the credits on the album, um, you played every instrument. Uh, for the most part, yeah. yeah. Um, and your, did your sister join you in some of the vocals? Uh, no, not my sister. Oh. Um, I did a lot of background <laughs> vocals uh, okay. myself. Mm -hmm. My uh, sister-in-law. A sister-in-law. That's okay. right. right. She did the vocals for okay. one of the tracks that's on there. But uh, for the most part, I've lugged around with me my recording studio mm -hmm. back and forth mm -hmm. um, and laid down the tracks myself with the exception of the drums which is done by a good friend you of mine. There, there are a lot of folks out there who have a lot of talent but they're working you know for a corporation whatnot. Uh, what advice would you give them in regards to finding that balance where you know you're, you're taking care of your, you know your, your business uh, working and taking care of your family but also you're taking care of that creative side. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's really a very important question and one that I struggled with for a long time because, you know, we've all been in the situation where we're working six days a week, 12 hours a day, and, um, you know, there's just more to life than that. And that's not to say you ignore or you do any less work, but mm -hmm. you really have to achieve a good work-life balance. Right. And when I realized that I wasn't doing my music, which I was passionate about. I wasn't spending as much time with my kids because I was traveling so much. How many children do you have? I've got two kids. Two kids. Yeah, ten and seven. And you know, I realized at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, you're not going to remember that conference call at nine o'clock you had on a Friday night. But um, so it's just about making time to have a good work-life balance, which I think is better for everybody involved, and it makes your work improve as well. So. And you you finished the album, and I, I know there was a write up in some of the local papers. Um, what other exciting things are going on with the album? Well, uh, frankly, I expected to sell about six copies, four of whom to my mom. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there's been some great publicity, not just locally, but on a broader scale as well. And uh, 
I was surprised that Spotify, in particular, once the song, once the album went live on iTunes, Spotify picked up on it and started broadcasting it to other countries around the world. So apparently, I'm um, I'm big in Sweden. Big in Sweden, okay. <laughs> so it's interesting to see where where some of my songs have become popular and where they've charted. Mm -hmm. And Sweden and the Netherlands are two areas where I guess. They like me over there, so we'll see. <laughs> but I'm not quitting my day job anytime that's soon. That's right, that's right. Uh, 10 Hundred Miles, you know, I really, I really love that title. I mean, obviously, you have flown over probably a million miles uh, over the course of your career. And you have this time away from your, your, your family. What do you reflect on as a businessman as it relates to your family? Well, when you're on an airplane for 15 hours and you've seen the latest Sandra Bullock movie three times over. There's a lot of free time to really sit there and, mm -hmm. and think. And um, you've pretty much hit the nail on the head. One of the common things I really thought about was, again, uh, finding a good work-life balance. Mm -hmm. And there was a point where, where I was traveling probably 75% of the year. Mm -hmm. um, after my son was, had just been born, he was a year old, and I had missed... Easter's and Thanksgiving's and birthdays and um, just realized there's got to be a bit better balance. So right. the travel scaled back a lot, but mm -hmm. um, but nowadays it's a lot easier to stay in touch too with the advances in, in technology. So That's it makes right. things That's easier right. too. FaceTime and all that good stuff. It's a great invention. Absolutely, yeah. sure is. Let, let's let's talk about leadership. Um, in your opinion, uh, from an international perspective, because Americans typically. Uh, not all, but a few go over there and really embarrass themselves because they, <laughs> they don't understand the local customs. But from an international perspective, what are the traits of a great leader in business? Well, first and foremost, without a doubt, I think the most important quality anyone that wants to be successful in international business really has to have an appreciation and a sensitivity and an understanding of the local culture. And I cannot stress that enough. Now, there have been case studies galore about Americans and American companies wanting to go overseas and expand their business internationally thinking you can just adopt the American model over there and everyone from the smallest company to GM has stories of flopping because they didn't understand the market and more importantly how to do business over there. Um, you know I've had the advantage of spending a lot of time abroad and knowing a lot of people in, in that space and, and being sensitive to how they, how they do business. And oftentimes if I go in and I can adapt to the Japanese methodology of doing business, for example, not only are they surprised that an American comes in and sort of knows how to do a proper bow, um, they give me a lot of respect in return. And that really counts for a lot. And I've been told that we'd be surprised at how much that really counts. So, you know, when we deal with new employees or interns, one of the first things I always talk about um, and really emphasize is the need to understand your market. And that applies whether it's international or, or domestic anywhere. And uh, speaking of Japan, uh, what are some of the common faux pas that um, some folks might make? Not, not just Americans, <laughs> but people who are not from uh, Japan. Well, some of these I've, I've learned by experience, but uh, one of the most important and common mistakes people make in Japan is uh, business cards. 
the Japanese, they hold the aspect of, of giving and receiving a business card is, is very important. And most Americans, we would get a business card and either throw it on the table or stuff it in our pocket or write on it. Um, but in Japan, you're supposed to treat that with reverence. Uh, you should have a business card holder that you put it in and uh, don't stuff it in your pocket right away. And of course, uh, the, the giving and receiving is with two hands. When That's you, right. When you hand the card and you receive the card. And then, uh, from what I understand, they want you to uh, read it so that you're showing respect that, oh, you're really reading who they are in your title. That's right. It would be good to make some polite comment on it or observation about their role or their company. And again, it's all about respect. Mm -hmm. And you're really showing respect in a way that they understand and they know, know that. So that's important. Is there any other uh, big faux pas that you can, that you can share with us? Uh, <laughs> don't ever stick your chopsticks straight up and down into a bowl of rice that, that uh, has the image of two incense sticks sticking out of a funeral pyre. And so if you're oh, ever eating wow. rice in Japan with chopsticks, always make sure you lay your chopsticks down across the top of the bowl, not stuck in the rice. So. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, on a lighter note, um, I was at a meeting that you were attending and you had a guest there from Australia. And uh, there was a particular, um, I don't know if it's a spread, you might say, had a, had a particular uh, taste to it. Ah, uh, yes. You know, and uh, from what I understand, you acquired this taste in China. Uh, in Taiwan, in of Taiwan, all places. Yes, yes. Well, what, what is that condiment? And uh... <laughs> <laughs> Well, the, the spread in question is called Vegemite, and my Australian friends would know exactly what I'm talking about. Yes. Vegemite is a black yeast salty spread, which is essentially all the gunk from the bottom of a fermentation tank when they make beer. Apparently it's loaded with vitamin B12 and they scoop this stuff up and the Australians put it on toast and it looks remarkably similar to Nutella, but you can't let that um, right, right, right. sway you. It's, uh, it's got a very pungent, raw taste. And it just so happens, Darrell, that I happen to have some samples right over here oh, for wow. you. So okay. feel free to dive in. Oh, right. Uh, <laughs> no, it's a very uh, cheap condiment that people put on toast and when I was a um, starving student and I had an Australian roommate we lived off of uh, bread and Vegemite for a good couple months so and if I acquired the taste. What was the Australian uh, rock band uh, that in their song they talk about Ve uh, Vegemite sandwich? Yeah, uh, Men at Work. Men at Work, yes. That's right. Yes, yes. And <laughs> let's talk about your role here at, at uh, Newsbank. It's, a, it's a, quite a significant role. Newsbank is renowned for its coverage of uh, newspaper articles from the beginning of time and currently, and you manage the international side of that business. What does that entail? Well, the international role really entails all facets of the business outside of the U.S. and Canada for the most part. And it's very wide-encompassing uh, in that it entails everything from doing product development, which includes market research on the ground, uh, product build, actual marketing and sales, sales channel management, account support and service. Um, really the biggest part of my role involves uh, 
building up and managing our international sales teams around the world, right. both our, our direct employees that work for us, either here in the U.S. or abroad, also managing our international agent network. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my travel involves going to visit these agents and ensure that they're up to speed and mm -hmm. properly trained and properly focusing on our, our products and, and opportunities abroad. So. And you've been doing it now for the last seven years, is it? With NewsBank for seven years, yeah. but I've worked in this space for about 20 or so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's a very small industry. and Right. What changes have you seen uh, over the last 20 years in doing business on an international basis? Where things have gotten easier, where things have gotten more challenging? Well, without a doubt, the biggest change I've seen is just in our generation, mm -hmm this mass globalization that has taken place in, I wouldn't even say one generation, it's happened in a period of roughly 10 years, whereby um, even just 15 years ago, if you went to France and tried to do business in France, if you didn't know, if you didn't know French, you weren't going to get very far. If you went to China to try to do business, if you didn't know Chinese, you weren't going to get very far. Same thing with Japan. Um, and so students were really uh, rushing to learn these languages where they wanted to do business. Nowadays that's a really big change. You can do business pretty much the world over and be able to do it in English. Mm -hmm. And whereas I talked before about the need to really understand your local market, uh, with the advances of technology and with a quicker development internationally in their cultural understanding, the need to be culturally sensitive, I think, has diminished somewhat from even 15 years ago. It's still very important, don't get me wrong, but there's more latitude and leeway given today if you make a cultural faux pas because the Chinese are more apt to know the American way of doing business mm -hmm. and they'll come to the table prepared for that. Now, at the same time, it's always a pleasant surprise if you come to the table prepared to do business the Chinese way, too. Right. But uh, that is one huge, huge difference I've seen just in the last 15 years. And of course, you know, with the advances in technology and the proliferation of broadband, we're working a lot faster, more efficiently, and we have access to markets that we didn't even have access to 10 to 15 years ago just because of the technology wasn't there. Right, right. And um, how do you find negotiating internationally? It's one of the things I love most about my job. Okay. Um, you know, there are two styles of negotiating. There's, there's the negotiating style to win, which is extract every dollar you possibly can out of a negotiation. And to some people, that's the vision of a successful negotiation. My approach and my view of a successful negotiation is really more of coming to a win-win solution. Mm -hmm. So you may not get every single dollar out of that, but if both parties walk away from the table happy, that's got the makings for a much better long-term relationship. So that's where that cultural sensitivity comes into play. Which country, in your opinion, is the toughest to negotiate with? Without a doubt, China. And, and, and why is that? Well, the Chinese, and I, I don't like to stereotype, um, but broadly speaking, the Chinese have a long history of negotiating almost every aspect of their lives. We as Americans just don't have that negotiating uh, tactic 
instilled in, in, in the things that we do. So they've been doing it for thousands of years. <laughs> they know right. how to do it. Um, they are very good at posturing and, and, and uh, really playing against all the emotional sensitivities and the financial pieces as well. So um, they're patient. Um, they know that they have a large market that Amer any American companies want to get into, and so right. they can afford to right. take a hard-line position if they need right. to. Um, but, yeah, they're, they're up there. <laughs> <laughs> How would you describe your leadership style? My leadership style is really uh, leading by example. Um, I don't like to micromanage. I like to hire people that have good heads on their shoulders and that are intrinsically very um, intelligent and street smart. If they're going to make a mistake, I'd rather them make a mistake and learn from that mistake rather than being just told what to do um, because I think that that's the way that people will learn from it. I've been fortunate to be successful in my career for the most part and I do know what I'm talking about on a lot of these things so a lot of the proof comes in the results that I'm able to bring um, but I do enjoy really spending time with people and helping educate them on on the process especially in international business so and on the theme of uh, leadership what do you feel are the key characteristics or traits of a great leader first and foremost I think patience is one of the most important things. I've seen too many people make mistakes, uh, do sloppy work if they're not patient. Uh, the second most important thing is the ability to listen. Not so much the ability to talk, although you might think that's very important, but my current boss, who was actually my boss 20 years ago, said to me on the second day of work, he said, whenever you go in to meet with the client, you should be doing 10% of the talking and 90% of the listening. And I've remembered that to this day, and that has served me very well. So I, I really preach that to the people that I train also. Excellent, excellent. And um, as, you, as you know, here in Newsbank, we have a number of young colleagues. Um, what advice would you give to them to prepare themselves to be a great leader? I think the key is to look at the people that have been successful and then spend some time to really think about what it is about those people that have made them successful. And everybody's different. People have different measuring sticks of what constitutes success. It could be a simple number that they've happened to hit. Um, it could be the ability to lead other people or command or make decisions on the fly. So number one, it really depends on what you want to get out of the term of being successful. Emulate those those points. Understand how they've gotten to the, the position where they have been, whether it's engendering trust, whether it's educating themselves, whether it's doing their own research, and follow in their footsteps and ask them what do they think has made them successful. That's some great advice. Uh, currently, are you mentoring any of the uh, younger folks here at Newsbank? I am. Uh, we have a great internship program actually here at Newsbank where we get some college students that come in for a four-month rotation and they get about a month in each division of the company and one of the 
uh, biggest elements of that training process is a, uh, a project that they do for me to do a full market analysis. And over the course of that, which is actually a, really a three-month process, I spend a lot of time with the interns and uh, do a lot of leadership training with them. And uh, we've been very fortunate to have a great group of people come through here and go on to be uh, quite successful in the company and elsewhere. That is awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. Um, speaking of heroes um, and, and leaders, um, this is a question I find very interesting for my guests because uh, some folks have heroes, some folks don't. What about you? Do you have any heroes that you model yourself after in regards to leadership? Uh, I do. <laughs> my biggest hero is my, my grandfather, who I was named after. He was a, um, a CEO of a brewery, of all things, in Cincinnati. But he was hired to be the CEO of a waste management company in Boston at a time in the 70s when it was rife with corruption and mafia influence. And he went in and he cleaned out the entire organization, got rid of the organized crime and the waste management business, wow. and did it against some pretty uh, uh, difficult circumstances. Yes. And you know, some of the things that he told me about his days are really admirable. Uh, Figures that are probably more well-known, Madeleine Albright, I've always been amazed at what she has done and what she's been able to do, both in terms of breaking a glass ceiling in government, not just in domestic government, but again, internationally. To be a woman, to go abroad and have the success that she had under the Clinton administration in places like the Middle East, China, uh, Latin America, where historically gender roles are are more important than they are here. Um, and of course, my personal favorite is uh, Winston Churchill for his uh, his leadership. I mean, it doesn't get much better than Churchill. Absolutely. <laughs> um, getting back to your music, I, I believe I heard you correctly that you have sold a song to uh, Chardet. Uh, that's that's true. Yep. Um, before I put out my album, I had some of my music up online for sale that mm -hmm. other artists could um, could buy and re-record for their own use and, and her uh, producer mm -hmm. bought one of my songs. It hasn't been recorded and released yet, but I'm uh, still waiting to hear. So Can't wait, can't wait for that next Chardet album. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> that, is, that, is, that is excellent. Is, is there a quote that um, about leadership that you'd like to share with the audience or a phrase or um, just an experience? Um, that demonstrates what leadership is, is all about. Yeah, um, there's a, a quote that I have carried around on a piece of paper in my wallet for probably 25 years now. Which 25? It okay. was a quote that came from the book Chesapeake by James Michener. And give me a moment Absolutely. just to find it here. Meanwhile, I think I'm going to try to find a cracker for the, for the, for the Vegemite. <laughs> so here it is. It's, um, it reads, A ship, like a human being, moves best when it is slightly athwart the wind, when it has to keep its sails tight and attend its course. For ships, like men, do poorly when the wind is directly behind, pushing them sloppily on their way so that no care is required in steering or in the management of sails. The wind seems favorable, for it blows in the direction one is heading, but actually it is destructive because it induces a relaxation and tension and skill. What is needed is a wind slightly opposed to the ship, 
for then tension can be maintained, juices can flow, and ideas can germinate. For ships, like men, respond to challenge. Wow, that is excellent. And you've been, how, how were you introduced to this, this quote? By reading the book? Or? I read the book 25 years ago and it jumped out at me and I copied it down and I've had it in my, uh, in my wallet ever since. And that's sort of a motto I tried to live by. Wow, that is excellent, Tim. Yeah. Tim, believe it or not, we are out of time. But before we go, any parting comments for our guests on the topic of leadership? I would just quote a, uh, a Chinese painting I have in my office here that reads, May your life be as deep as the East Sea and as high as the West Mountain. And I think that pretty much uh, wow. sums it up. Excellent. Ladies and gentlemen, we are here with Mr. Tim Russell, the VP of International Markets for Newsbank and the singer and songwriter of the new album, End of Beginnings. And Tim, I take it that they can uh, get this on iTunes? They can, yep. It's available on iTunes or the CD is available from tim-russell.org. Wonderful. Tim, thanks for coming on Thank the program. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, that wraps it up for this weekend. This is Darrell Gunter, your host of Leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM and streaming on the net at WSOU.net. Remember, leadership begins with you. Have a great weekend.